Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the 15th episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial markets could be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. Arguably the most important point we've heard in this series was when Goldman Sachs Commodities Chief Jeffrey Curry told us that the single most important challenge the industry faces is putting a price on carbon in a market system that offers efficient price discovery. So my guest this week will be Bill Pezos, a man who's doing exactly that. Bill is co-founder and COO of Air Carbon Exchange a company in the business of bringing the trading systems used in the conventional commodities market to the carbon trading market. We'll discuss the history of carbon offset trading, the challenges the industry now faces, and what the future holds for what Jeff Curry described as the single most important challenge we face and the evolution toward smarter markets that better serve investors and society as a whole. My interview with Air Carbon Exchange co-founder Bill Pezos is coming up next. And now, with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Bill, thanks so much for joining me on Smarter Markets. It's great to have you on the program. I want to start by going back to a conversation that I had with Jeff Curry, the commodities chief for Goldman Sachs, who said that the single biggest and most important challenge that we face in this whole ESG revolution is going to be putting a price on carbon with efficient price discovery. I want to come back to that as the, the main topic of the interview, but why don't we start with the history of this, because you've been in this market for a long time. A lot of our listeners probably don't know. I certainly don't know. When did people first start trading carbon credits? How did this come about? And what's the history of both what's gone well and what's gone wrong from when it started to where we are today? Well, thank you so much, Eric. I'm very pleased to be here. The story is, uh, is a bit of a windy road, and interestingly, it starts with the United States. You'll recall that we used to have acid rain, and uh, at the time, the United States came up with a cap-and-trade scheme that basically made power companies uh, in the New England region curtail their emissions of socks and knocks and actually trade around them and incentivize them with market forces to do so. And lo and behold, we don't have an acid rain problem today. So when the Council of Parties meeting, I believe it was the third one, if I'm not mistaken, in Rio in 92 came about and everybody around the world, including the United States, rallied around this idea that climate change was real and that it was a man-made problem, the United States was the first one to say, well, we have a solution for you. We can control greenhouse gases by using the same format that we used to control socks and knocks. So it was actually the United States that recommended a cap and trade scheme as a solution for climate change. It was not as is the case with a lot of these UN driven issues. 
it was not until 97 with the Kyoto Protocol that you had the makings of a global carbon market. Unfortunately, that coincided with a period of, of negotiations around the world and political wrangling. The biggest problem with the COP construct is that 192 countries around the world, or I think it's 196, participate in the COP meetings and they each have a equal vote. So you need a consensus around 196 countries to get things done. So even though the Kyoto Protocol, which set the stage for the global carbon markets, was designed and agreed in 97, it was not till 2005, February of 2005, that the Kyoto Protocol was ratified by a significant number of countries, sufficient number of countries. Unfortunately, the U.S. at the time was uh, the president was Bush, and so his political background is is in the oil producing states in the United States, and so it was very difficult for him politically to subscribe to the Kyoto Protocol. So the U.S. has sort of sat on the sidelines until very recently. The cap and trade scheme then began really with the EU putting most of the impetus in the market. They created the European Emission Trading Scheme. And uh, under the European Emission Trading Scheme, carbon credits from around the world found a home. And uh, that created the first price signal in the carbon markets. I think at, at its peak, we were talking about as much as 15 euros a ton for carbon credits in the what's now called the voluntary space. Let's talk a little bit more about the voluntary versus regulatory markets. As I understand it, that's kind of the division of carbon trading. There are credits that are associated with a government tells you, if you do this, you must buy a credit for it, versus the voluntary space where you know responsible uh, people who are traveling on airlines want to do their part to buy an offset credit to you know equalize or neutralize the effect of their travel on the environment. How big are each of these markets? How, how, how much of the carbon Carbon trading is regulatory versus voluntary, and where is it headed? Well, I think the biggest the biggest difference between the voluntary carbon markets and the compliance carbon markets uh, is really that the the compliance markets don't use carbon credits. So, you know, you'll find people saying, "Oh, carbon credits prices are you know thirty euros a ton in Europe." Well, that's actually not the case. So. The division is as follows. So the compliance markets typically have what are called allowances. So they define a group of industries within their borders that they want to cap their respective emissions. And they simply cap them by giving them certificates, which are called allowances, denominated in tons of carbon. That basically say, you know, if you have a corporate that... um, just as an example, let's say they emitted a million tons last year, the government would give them, let's say, 800,000 tons of allowances. So if they emitted more than 800,000 tons, they'd had to go, have to go into the market and buy allowances. If they managed to reduce their emissions below the 800,000, then they could sell the, the additional, the, the surplus allowances that they were given. So the universe of carbon of allowances in any particular market is dictated by the governments. And that's why governments play such an important part in in creating scarcity and then by definition, creating a price signal. 
The voluntary carbon markets are different. Basically, every carbon credit represents a savings of carbon denominated in tons of carbon below a business as usual. So if you take, for example, I think that we're, you know, there's a big emphasis on, on forestry projects lately. So if you, if you take a look at, a, at, a, at a, any particular forest and you want to save that forest and, and, and get paid for doing that in the form of carbon credits, it's not an easy process. But in simple terms, the process is the first thing you need to do is quantify how much carbon is actually sitting in that forest. Right, so that people have this vision in their minds where they think forests are, are lungs that sort of eternally take carbon out of the atmosphere, and really they they're more like a box of carbon, right? So a, a forest reaches a maturity level, and all the carbon is sequestered in the form of trees and trunks and leaves and branches, and 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 as they mature, they reach a peak, and so you have the total amount of of carbon that sits in that box, right? So the next thing you need to do is determine how quickly that that forest would deforest if you didn't do anything. So let's assume that the deforestation rate would tell you that if we don't do anything, this forest will be gone in 10 years. And let's say there is a million tons of carbon, uh, you've quantified there's a million tons of carbon in that forest. What will end up happening is that um, every year that you've saved that forest from deforestation. So by extension, you've saved the world from releasing 100,000 new tons of carbon into the atmosphere. So you get the project registered, it's audited, it's super transparent. There's a very robust infrastructure for doing this. And several registries around the world give you the methodology to monitor, report, and verify all of this. You'll Typically, you'll, you'll hear a lot of MRV being talked to bandied about and you send the auditor in every year and the auditor confirms that the carbon is still in the forest and they issue you a certificate which you then convert into a carbon credit which can be sold to a company that wants to offset their emissions due to their activity that they're unable to to reduce internally so you know you're a bank and and the business model of banks is to fly bankers all around the world you know, so in order to mitigate that activity, you buy the carbon credit. So the carbon credit actually is a way of, in essence, financing that forestry project. So those are the two main differences. Now, Jeff Curry told us that we don't really have an efficient carbon market. You know, you look at the crude oil market, everybody knows the price of crude oil. There's three benchmark contracts, everything in the world in terms of different grades and locations is all priced off of those contracts. In the case of carbon, it's kind of one country has these rules, another country has those rules. What is the current state of this market? How would you describe both where it stands right now and where it needs to go in order to achieve that goal Jeff described of getting to having a, a efficiently discovered price on carbon? I use this analogy a lot to, to explain where the carbon markets are today. So if you sort of distill what Jeff said was, uh, he, he's basically saying that the carbon markets are, are not trading within traditional commodities architecture. And what, what he means by that, and I, I usually use soybeans as an example, if you had to create a parallel between the soybean market and the current carbon markets, 
it would be as if you were driving a truck of soybeans around Chicago looking for a buyer. Literally, you would, let's say, drive up to one of the big trading houses. You'd have to convince the trader to come downstairs to the street, and you would end up having an entire conversation about the truck. Where, where did you plant the beans? When did you pick them? What kind of beans are they, et cetera? That's how the market for carbon credits trades today on a truck-by-truck basis. Literally, if you're going to buy carbon credits today, you're going to have a conversation with someone, and they will tell you where the forest is, when they started the activity, where they registered it, et cetera. And so today, carbon credits trade more like paintings or sailboats and less like traditional commodities. Is it a goal that they should trade like regular commodities, or is there something inherent to them that makes them unsuitable for trading that way? Well, what we are doing at ACX is bringing traditional commodities architecture to the carbon markets. So what happens in our soybean example is that they, you know, the exchanges have warehouse networks. They agree on a specification of soybeans that they allow into those warehouses. They're deposited, the, the underlying product is deposited into the warehouse and effectively digital receipts that represent you know, the, the product, the commodity in the warehouse it w- is what trades on the exchange. And no one within the commodity space ever thinks about, you know, that truck of soybeans anymore. So we're doing the same thing at ACX. The idea is that we, instead of warehouses, we create trusts. The definition of those trusts are along market demand. So for example, the first trust that we created securitized credits that were eligible under the international aviation scheme, which is called Corsia. And so if you have a carbon credit that's eligible under that under that process, what you do is you send it into our exchange and we create a digital receipt on our exchange, which you can then trade and they're completely fungible. No one then needs to say, you know, is this a good project? Is that a bad project, et cetera? You know, this, you know the general specifications of the asset class and it creates immediate price discovery with a tight market. If you if you look at again, if you look at traditional commodities architecture, let's think of soybeans again. On on one side you've got farmers and on the other side you have food companies, but they represent maybe let's call it 5% of the total trading in the market. The other 95 is actually you know, speculators, hedgers, uh, banks, financiers, you know, liquidity providers, etc. In the carbon markets, that's flipped around. 95% are project developers and corporates that are buying for retirement, and only 5% are actually providing liquidity and all of the other price pressure on, on, on carbon credits. And the bottleneck for that money to come into the market is the structure of the market itself. It's structured like, you know, buying a carbon credit's like buying a sailboat. So it's very difficult to make a call on on going long the asset class. And, you know, there's literally trillions of dollars in the hedge fund industry that that is aware that we're moving into a carbon constrained world and, you know, they just don't have a vehicle to put that money to work. Uh, we're hoping to do that by you know, securitizing credits into tradable instruments. 
let me make sure that I understood what you just said. Right now, uh, I happen to be long crude oil futures because I think between secular inflation and the supply destruction that occurred in the COVID crisis and an expected return of demand, prices are likely to go up. It sounds like you're saying there are hedge funds and other financial actors who would like to speculate and be long carbon futures because they can see that the, the whole future of where society is headed is toward a more environmentally conscious outcome, a green energy revolution, if you will. It sounds like you're saying right now there just is no way, you know, in, in other investments, you can invest in the companies or you can invest in the commodity directly. When it comes to green tech, you can invest in the companies, but you can't really invest in the commodity directly right now. Is that a fair summary? In the carbon market, yes. You know, there are some of the larger indice producing entities out there have come up with carbon indices. But uh, when you sort of mine down into what they've created, these indices are imperfect at best. You know, they're a bit of a dog's breakfast. They, they include in the same index, for example, the California cap and trade scheme, as well as the European trading scheme. So both of those have exactly zero in common. So other than they are both sort of climate focused. So it's a very it's very difficult for companies today to, to gain exposure to the asset class in a pure way. Is the asset class something that there's reason to have a, a secular bullish view on? I mean, certainly, I believe in the, the green energy revolution. It's going to change the world that we live in completely. It's a major trend. But you could look at that one of two ways. You could say, well, therefore, you want to invest in carbon credits because there's going to be much more demand for them. Or you could say, wait, what the world needs to do in order to make the world a better place is we need to make carbon credits more readily available at lower prices so that it's easier to buy them to offset our consumption. And therefore, there's perhaps no real reason to expect price appreciation in carbon credits, because hopefully the outcome that we get to is one where prices don't appreciate, but rather the credits become more plentiful and more available. Does it make sense to, to speculate on the long side of, of carbon credits for the purpose of price appreciation? Yes, it definitely makes sense. I'll give you an example of uh, several, but maybe about 10 years or so ago, the price of carbon credits was at about 11 euros a ton. And um, I personally invested in and owned a part of 22 pig farm biodigesters. I don't know anything about pigs, but I can tell you that I was very willing to invest in the biodigesters because I was creating carbon credits at about two euros a ton, and the market was willing to pay me 11 euros a ton for that. So the higher the price of carbon, the more private equity and long-term funding is released into climate mitigating activities. The lower the price of carbon, the more difficult it is to finance climate mitigating activities. So it's, it's um, you know, having low prices of carbon credits, simply it means that either we've solved climate change Right. So if we, we get to a point where there really is no longer a climate question, so we've all moved to EV vehicles and we've sort of cracked the nut on storage and we've uh, you know, changed our behavior and all of that, the price of carbon should float down to zero. We are decades and decades away from that point. 
the other you know negative influence on the price is again if there's zero political will right so if you get government leaders that come in and say well you know climate change doesn't exist or yeah it exists but we can't afford it or you know whatever it is then you've put yourself in a situation where prices will collapse and that's what happened post 2012 let's talk more about where this is headed as things stand currently it seems to me like where we kind of stand is everybody agrees there really needs to be a carbon market but nobody's really sure what the definitive central carbon market is so there's a bunch of little ones and there's no real clarity as as to what the global standard is if you will is that what we need as a global standard or is it a matter of there being other problems that need to be solved first in order to make these carbon markets more appealing what what are the challenges and what needs to happen in order to get that vision of efficient price discovery for the price of, of uh, carbon credits and carbon emissions uh, on a global basis? I think what needs to happen is actually happening. You know, governments around the world are, are adopting processes and policies that at the end of the day put a price on carbon. And once you've put a price on carbon, you start changing the way people behave. So, for example, with ABEX, we're working very closely on providing an instrument that would allow the shipment of LNG from point A to point B, for example, to be to to have a carbon contract attached to it that would, in essence, deliver a carbon neutral LNG experience, and you know that that's easier said than done. It involves addressing a standard and having the industry coalesce around a global standard that's acceptable. Now, I'm very skeptical of any activity that is that is initiated from the top down. I think if, you know, you mentioned a couple of oil contracts like Brent, etc., uh, those were contracts that were sort of organically uh, created. They weren't created on a you know, on a, uh, with PowerPoints and a committee and that sort of thing. They, they basically became benchmarks and there's, you know, WTI, et cetera. And so I'm, I'm more of the, I believe that, you know, the carbon markets will, I think at last count, I think there are about 27 different carbon markets that were coalescing around the world. The importance of the voluntary market is that almost all of them are accepting voluntary credits in one shape or another. And so the global price of carbon is going to be a a, a sort of average of all of these competing local markets. So I, I think we're moving in that direction. We're moving well in that direction, but we should be very leery of any attempts to sort of top down design a market. I think that's a that's a misguided endeavor. With respect to fungibility of these credits, it seems to me that I would think there would be a big challenge to that in the sense, you know, if you look at the crude oil market, you've got a contract like Brent, which pretty much sets the the seaborne price for crude oil globally. And, And everybody just sort of agrees on that. There's no pressure for anyone to say there has to be a different market in, in, in my country because everybody's happy to price off of that contract. 
I would think that governments, if what you're saying is we're going to create these carbon credits, which people are going to buy, well, most governments would be saying, I, I want the projects which are going to focus on reforestation and, and you know, building environmentally friendly things. I, I want them happening in my country. I, I don't want people in my country buying credits on some futures exchange, which means that, you know, Canadians or Americans end up getting all kinds of environmental projects built at our expense. I want that money going into my country. Am I misunderstanding it? Is that something that's a real concern? I, I would just be afraid that governments would want to over control what I would otherwise hope would be a free market for carbon credits. That's an interesting point. Governments are currently fighting it out, if you will, at the Council of Party meetings that it's set up by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the COP meetings. The next one is in uh, November, the 26th meeting, and it'll be in Glasgow. There, um, under the Paris Accords, there's something called Article 6 that establishes the framework for global a global carbon offsetting scheme or global trading scheme on a global basis. The biggest issue amongst countries is what they call corresponding adjustments. So under the Paris Accords, every country puts in a voluntary cap on their emissions. They agree to trade. And what Article 6 basically brings into the mix is that if a country has an excess of credits over and above their stated cap, they can sell it to a country that doesn't and vice versa. So you're creating sort of this, this global infrastructure to, to trade credits. The, the biggest issue there is what's called corresponding adjustments. And the voluntary space overlays this entire space. So just to give you an example, let's say, I don't know, uh, Apple in California buys credits from a forest in Indonesia, you have to make sure that Indonesia is not counting that as their reduction if Apple in California is also counting it as a reduction. So you can imagine how unwieldy that can possibly be. So there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of cross border issues that in my mind you should keep away from the voluntary space. It, it just becomes a little bit too unwieldy. You said earlier that we should not try to design a market from the top down, and I agree with you completely. It makes the most sense to allow free markets to figure these things out in a lot of cases. But with respect to that, how far along are we in the process? What are the, the next few hurdles, if you will, that we need to overcome in order to eventually evolve toward that vision of fungible and efficiently price-discovered carbon credits? Well, I think one of the things that happened, you know, about 18 months ago or two years ago, I think now, uh, time does fly, is that ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, which basically rules uh, global air travel, set up something called the TAB, the Technical Advisory Board, and they came up with CORSIA, which is the Carbon Offset Reduction Scheme for International Aviation. It's an interesting concept in that Corsia has set a baseline of 2019 as the, as the airline's baseline, the airline industry's baseline. The first phase goes from 2020 to 2023. And um, post-2023, 
the airlines will audit their positions in terms of how much extra travel they did over and above the 2019 baseline. They will quantify that in tons of carbon. And on, in 2025, they will deliver to their respective regulators carbon credits to offset that emissions, those emissions. The TAB has defined the carbon credits that are eligible for that program. So it's the first time you ever have a, a carbon specification that's actually global in nature and cross-border. Uh, cross so that's a, a huge breakthrough in the market. So you know how you were talking about the, the, the sort of strengths of Brent as, a, as an index and as something that um, as, a, as a price point, as a benchmark, Corsia has the possibility of becoming that benchmark. It's a, it, it, it is a controversial benchmark, but it is one nonetheless, because the airline industry accounts for two and a half percent of the world's, of the world's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, and so it's an important benchmark. However, you know, the, I think the total, the total supply of carbon credits, if you on the defined basket that Corsia is, uh, has outlined is about 178 million tons. Total demand prior to COVID for the first phase was expected to be about 90 or 100 million tons. So it was over, uh, oversupplied. And now with COVID, it's highly likely that actual demand for Corsia eligible credits will be nearer to zero and as such, they're, you know, I think on our platform, it's trading at about $1.20 now is the bid price on uh, the, buy, the buy side on, on Corsia-eligible credits. So the Corsia benchmark, if it becomes a benchmark, is currently controlled by the aviation industry or by ICAO, which is the, the aviation industry's sort of self-regulatory body. In your opinion, is that a good place for it? Does it? I mean, sometimes these things just evolve, and they either make sense or they don't make sense. Is this something where if it evolved that way and ICAO was kind of in charge of the benchmark carbon contract that all other industries were using, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? It's a, it's, it is a thing. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to say if it's going to be an excellent, uh, if it's an excellent idea or not. I think it's it is a good thing personally. And the reason my reasoning is, is sort of couched on the, on the technical advisory board, which, which we call the tab. It's comprised of 19 individuals, I believe, from different countries around the world, extremely knowledgeable individuals within the carbon markets, representing 19 different countries. These are, you know, individuals that have represented their countries, respectively, at the Council of Party meetings. Uh, they have a, a very deep understanding of, of the carbon, I don't want to say carbon markets, but of, cap and, of carbon credits and, and, and such. And so what ends up happening is that you have, you know, 19 very large players in the aviation industry, which by default are also probably the 19 countries that actually matter in terms of mitigating climate change negotiating in a room around a benchmark and so what you find is that you know it becomes it's a it's a globally negotiated benchmark it's almost like a microcosm of the UN negotiations the broader cop meetings instead of having 196 countries 
you have 19 countries around sitting around a table negotiating a standard that then goes for approval across the across the ICAO membership but what's interesting about ICAO even though it's a UN body a simple majority is necessary for getting things done whereas in the COP meetings things are done on a on a consensus basis on a full consensus basis so I think it I think it's a, it's a it's very worthwhile it's divided into different phases so you know I think the first phase being a trial phase being a negotiated phase uh, they allowed carbon credits that are maybe not as rigorous as as some people on the on the green side of the spectrum would would want there's enough rigor in it that the airline industry is not completely comfortable with with the specification and as time goes on every single phase i think the tab will tighten the screws in order to get to the climate goals that they've set now you said earlier that one of the things that you're looking at is trying to get rid of that uh, trucker talking to the trader model where instead of having each uh, each project selling its its credits wherever they can find a buyer that you really apply the the systems and the disciplines of commodity trading to this how ready is the world for that and what are the things that you're doing what are the challenges how are you approaching this it's it's an interesting paradigm i think what's what's happening in the carbon markets today is that a lot of the buy side activity at the corporate level is within the purview of the marketing department and the sustainability team the c-suite of most corporates are looking at the purchase of carbon credits and offsetting lesser and lesser to a lesser and lesser extent but still are looking at it as a uh, marketing cost and not as a an actual business cost you know that's that's changing you you know you've just seen you know the likes of larry fink and and blackrock basically saying that you know c-suites that don't quantify and establish their climate change risks on their balance sheet are are basically negligent so that that that's changing but as the price of carbon starts increasing that activity of buying carbon credits for offsetting emissions is going to move away from the marketing department away from to a certain extent from the sustainability department and into the lap of the treasury department so the treasuries of these corporates are going to look to the sustainability team and say what are the characteristics that we're going to buy that group will determine the definition of what carbon credits are eligible for that company to buy and that will end their part of the of the conversation it will then sit in the treasury and it will be the treasury that will be motivated more than anything else by price and when that happens a lot of the barriers that we're finding today in terms of people not wanting to trade contracts because they're they they're just fixated on what is behind that contract that's going to melt away we actually saw that during the first kyoto phase when the european trading scheme told the 14,000 companies that comprise the european trading scheme that you know these are the carbon credits that are eligible for you to tender into the the first phase of the eu ets they immediately went and found the less expensive carbon credits 
Now, there's nothing wrong with inexpensive carbon credits. That is the that's that's the point of a carbon credit market. It forces the individual to find the absolutely less expensive way to mitigate a ton of carbon. You're still mitigating a ton of carbon. You're actually using the profit motive to to direct traffic first towards the most inexpensive way of mitigating a ton of carbon and then secondly you know the next cheapest and so forth so that is that is the the sort of driving force behind the carbon markets so you know there's nothing wrong with a cheap carbon credit it just means that you've successfully found the the less expensive way of mitigating a ton of carbon bill let's talk about elon musk obviously a very prominent and incredibly uh, charismatic and persuasive personality who seems to influence a lot of people's thinking. Uh, Not mine so much, but quite a few other people. One of the narratives that you hear out there is Tesla's not in the car business, they're in the carbon credit business. That's the way they make money is selling carbon credits, not not making and selling cars. Is there any truth to that? And, uh, and let's take that question broader to if that's not true, what is true? And what does this market really look like? And what is the impact of influential people who may have their own agenda, such as Elon Musk? Yeah, I've been hearing a, a lot about that lately. And it's... It, um it's it's somewhat amusing, you know. Within within the United States, within California specifically, they've instituted a, a, a system that is similar to renewable energy credits around the world. So renewable energy credits are set up in order to promote, you know, clean clean energy. And so what the the renewable energy credits work the way they work is that they every megawatt that gets put into the system by a solar or a wind power project, for example, is given a renewable energy credit. And every coal-fired power plant that puts a megawatt into into the grid needs to buy a renewable energy credit and attach it to that megawatt. And so what that instrument, that renewable energy credit actually is, is a certificate that transfers capital away from polluting technologies to non-polluting technologies. Effectively, you're making polluting technologies more expensive and non-polluting technologies less expensive. It also promotes investment in renewable energy, which will then change behavior because as the industrial park or the, the power plants, the dirty power plants become obsolete, they are replaced with clean power because of these, these uh, wrecks make it more expensive to, to sell power. So the California market instituted that same concept in the electric vehicle, in the electric vehicle market. So they came up with instead of Rex, uh, there are these. Uh, I can't remember the name of them right now. I'll have to. I'll have to look it up. But I believe it's like ZEVs or something like that. So they came up with these certificates that polluting vehicles have to buy these certificates when they sell a carbon credit into the California market and and. Um, Elon Musk and Tesla receive these credits when they sell the vehicles into the California market. So what ends up happening is that it's actually GM and Ford and all these other companies that are transferring capital into Elon and Tesla's pockets in order to make that electric vehicle more competitive. Now, 
if you take a step back and you think about the billions of dollars that were necessary in order to make that investment in those in that plant and take that risk of creating that entire infrastructure that would not have been possible without having that sort of renewable energy credit type of structure and now that he's taken that risk that he's put that factory in place and that the cars are being manufactured and sold it's it's now that um that you're seeing the benefits of it but you know there was a lot of risk that was taken early on before we got to this point bill let's talk next about how these markets work and how secure they are from a fraud and credibility standpoint because it seems to me if i'm buying a physical commodity like crude oil or copper uh, okay, it's possible that I could buy a million barrels of crude oil in a tank in Cushing, Oklahoma, and I get to the tank and it turns out it's empty and the guy I bought it from is taken off to South America and uh, I've lost my money. Frauds happen, but you know, they're really easy to find out. You get there, the tank is empty. On the other hand, if I bought carbon credits, which requires somebody somewhere has supposedly planted a forest or, or not cleared a forest or whatever the case is. Now, how do I know they didn't sell the same credit to two different people? It just seems like there's a lot more opportunity for fraud and deception in a market where what you're buying is a credit that describes something somebody supposedly did that you don't really have any direct way of verifying. Is that something we should be concerned with? And what is being done in the industry to assure that there is accountability behind the carbon trading market? That's actually a good question, but I don't think it's a problem in the carbon markets, in the voluntary carbon markets. There's a very robust registry system across two of the major registries. One is the gold standard and the other one is VERA, uh, voluntary carbon standard. VERA in particular probably accounts for 60 plus percent of the total voluntary carbon market registration process. And the way to register a carbon project is extremely public in nature. So it requires a carbon project developer to register their project with the, with the registry. And in that application, they put all the particulars of the project, including location, et cetera. That's evaluated by the registry itself. But it's also within the process of doing this, it is opened up for consultation worldwide. So anyone can sort of handhold a project and keep an eye on a project as it goes through the registration process. It's an extremely rigorous process, and it's a very transparent and public process. Once the project is registered as a carbon project, it needs to do what it says it was going to do in the carbon in, in the project itself, get that activity audited, and then take that audit certificate to the registry. And the registry then issues the underlying carbon credit to the, to the project developer. So it's an, an extremely long process. It's very transparent. There is the possibility that a project owner could pick two different projects and decide to you know, tweak the, the underlying uh, information somewhat. But I believe that's, that's extremely unlikely. What is, what is more likely is that someone could buy carbon credits, announce to the world that they have mitigated carbon using those specific carbon credits, and then 
sell those carbon credits onto the market without retiring them so that the underlying carbon credits would be used twice. Again, that is relatively, I, I think that's that rarely happens. And the reason for that is that the upside, um, especially at the current market prices, the upside for doing that is, is the, the downside actually outweighs the upside by a country mile. So I don't see as much fraud as a problem in this, in this market. Let's talk more about what it means to bring the structure of commodity trading to carbon trading. Because as I think about commodity trading, you know, there's separate markets. There's a spot market, which is where most of the physical purchase and sale of commodities that actually get physically delivered occurs. But most of the price discovery for that market actually occurs in the commodity futures market before the delivery occurs. And I suppose in the context of carbon credits, since there is no physical delivery of a carbon credit as a, you know, a, a thing that gets put on a truck someplace, I guess you don't need a spot market. You'd only have a futures market. How would that work? Well, we are at ACX, we are a, a spot commodity market. So we, we only operate in the spot market. So any carbon credit that's purchased on our exchange is actually securitized on the exchange. We are in the process of developing a forward market. We, we have recently found out from the Monetary Authority of Singapore that we, our current regulatory framework is sufficient in order to, to develop a futures contract. And, um, and, and so we are doing that. We expect to launch a futures contract towards the end of Q2. That's basically how the market is structured today. Now, I saw a recent press announcement that our sponsor, Abex Technologies, made a strategic investment in your company. And I know how Josh Crumb's mind works, so he didn't do that just on a whim. Uh, there must be a strategic partnership in mind here. Is the idea that Abex would work with you to develop the futures contract to support your spot market, or, or what's on the table here? Well, I think um, uh, the synergies are much more than just the futures market. Um, for us, it's very, very interesting that, you know, ABEX has a RMO licensed clearing clearinghouse in, in Singapore. And we would like to sort of hang our hat on the ABEX platform in order to develop a futures product for, for our securitized um, carbon credits. So that's sort of the first point where we can work together. The other point where we can work together, which is which is very interesting, is um, is in the LNG business itself. So ABAX Technologies has a majority-owned subsidiary in Singapore, uh, which is a ABAX uh, LNG exchange, the ABAX Exchange, and we are working hand in hand with them to develop carbon products to offset the, the, the carbon footprint of delivery of, of LNG cargos. And that's, a, that's an extremely exciting opportunity for us because it marries you know, two commodities and, and will open the door for, for, for a lot of other activity. So uh, it's, 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 a very exciting, um, it's a very exciting association for us. Now, one of the ideas that I've heard thrown about, I don't know if there's any uh, reality to this, is the idea of an integrated carbon trading model where instead of buying 
the the crude oil futures contract or the natural gas futures contract. You'd buy a, a green crude oil futures contract, and the act of buying that contract would automatically transact an offsetting carbon credit. So there would be effectively one-stop shopping for the buyer to buy your energy and automatically transact whatever carbon credits are necessary in order to make that a carbon-neutral energy contract. Does that make sense, or does it make more sense for people to buy their energy and buy their offsetting credits on separate markets? No, I think I think it makes sense to a certain to a certain degree. I think that the decision to offset, and by extension, when I say decision, I mean the cost of offsetting, should happen at the point where the emission is actually created. So, if you have, if you think of, for example, the LNG life cycle, the shipping industry is moving that LNG from point A to point B, for example, and it is adding to the carbon footprint of that LNG reaching its ultimate destination. So I would, I I think it makes a lot more sense to have the shipping industry offset that point or that additional emission that was caused and so if, if, the, if the shipping industry says, okay, I'm going to deliver from point A to point B, when I get to point B, I will deliver it on a carbon neutral basis. And so you, what you find in, in looking at emissions in that way is that the onus of offsetting the additional emissions falls on the company that's, that's creating that emission. There's a much more sort of one-to-one relationship between the cost of that emission and the cost of offsetting it. And the last person in in that life cycle to actually burn that molecule and release it into the atmosphere, then the onus is on them to buy carbon credits for that molecule by itself and not have to enter into an exercise that looks all the way back through the value chain and tries to sum up each one of those activities. That is a very unwieldy process. You know, it's it's sort of like uh, one of these, it's not as crazy, but it's one of these questions like how big is the universe, right? I mean, you go to, uh, until what point do you stop counting the carbon footprint of that molecule? So it makes a lot more sense for companies to do it as they go along. Bill, final question. I feel pretty excited about where this carbon market is headed. I think it's the future. But you know what? There have been quite a few, uh, I'll call it false starts in this industry, going uh, back to the original Kyoto Protocol and beyond that, where it seemed like, okay, cap and trade is the new thing. And it it was talked about for a bit and kind of lost its steam and never really went anywhere. It feels to me like it's different this time, and I I guess the reason I say that is just because, especially with the new administration in the United States, it seems like the political commitment to to green energy and green and, and more socially responsible policy in general seems to have taken grip politically. But is there a risk that maybe this is another false start and, you know, the the world's not ready to really take this thing seriously yet? You know, I'm a, I'm a bit of an entrepreneur, so by definition, I'm a bit of an optimist. But it feels it definitely feels different this time. The skeptics are are running for the hills. The oil companies have 
sort of abandoned their efforts at you know financing think tanks that cast doubt on 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 climate change and the um, and the notion that men that humanity is involved in in creating climate change. So all of these sort of skeptics have have disappeared, and on top of that, we have a a very powerful ally this time around in the form of Mother Nature. You know, you see what's been happening just this week in Texas. It's very dangerous to talk about climate and point at weather because uh, climate and weather are different things. But what's happening is, and I think it's very difficult to to, to argue against, is that you know we're definitely moving into a period of global weirding. To, to quote Friedman. Uh, one of the the worst things that happened to climate change was to be called global warming because it's not as 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 descriptive as it actually should be. We're actually moving into a world of climate weirding, and and we're seeing that more and more. So I think that the other thing that's that's interesting this time around is that it's being adopted and green activity is being adopted as a solution to the problem as opposed to a, a nice thing to also have. You know, that we're looking at how to attack the effects of a global pandemic on our economy by directing, you know, tax dollars towards uh, green activity and innovation. So it, it definitely feels different. And I think we have powerful allies in, in Washington now. It just, it just feels different. I think, um, you know, ACX and 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 our company is uh, is definitely poised to take advantage of of our move into a carbon constrained world. Bill, thanks so much for a terrific interview. The inaugural episode of Smarter Markets, featuring billionaire mining executive and financier Robert Friedland, remains a listener favorite to date. Robert will be returning next week for another interview this time focusing on what it will take to grain the global economy. That's coming up next week right here on Smarter Markets. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's not every day you come across a podcast with guests on the caliber that you've heard here on Smarter Markets. And we have a veritable who's who of industry legends lined up for interviews in coming weeks. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via word of mouth. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Markets.